All right, you can have a seat, and if you would, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. This is on page 991 in the Bibles around you if you don't have a Bible with you. It is great to see all of you. Uh, it's great to get to know a good number of you or meet you today for the first time. And like John mentioned earlier, if you're a guest, explore for four with us. What that means is stick around for four weeks and just get to know how we do things. Get to know how we preach, how we talk, how we pray, how we sing, uh, get to know some faces. That is the way to really find out if this might be the place that God has for you uh, as a church. But super excited today, today to be kicking off a brand new expository preaching series through the book of First Timothy. Again, page 991. And to help us kick that off, I want to go old school for a minute. I want to throw it back to Kenny Rogers, right? So 1980, so 38 years ago, if you're younger than me, I'm 39, you don't remember this, but he had a song that was called Coward of the County back in 1980. And the whole song was about how there was this kid, his name's Tommy, and Tommy's dad was in jail. And he was just a, a ruffian, he was just a brawler, he was a fighter, and uh, the dad was dying in prison, and his last words to his son Tommy were, hey, promise me, son, not to do the things I've done, walk away from trouble if you can, with the whole point being, um, you don't have to fight to prove that you're a man, all right? And so he's saying, don't do that, don't be like I was, you don't have to fight to prove that you're a man. And so the story through the song goes on, and, and, and Tommy grows up, and he has a girlfriend, and uh, his girlfriend brutally raped by these three horrible brothers. And so Tommy can't, can't take it anymore. He goes to confront them. And when he does, he unleashes 20 years of being bottled up inside and the fury of what they've done to his girlfriend. And when the last one you know, hits the floor, he kind of says to his dad, I promised you, dad, not to do the things that you've done. I've walked away from trouble when I can. But dad, sometimes you do have to fight when you're a man, all right? Sometimes you do have to fight when you're a man. Now, for the Christian, though, we always have to fight. We always are to be fighting, right? Not against people, right? Not against other people, not against our parents, not against our siblings, not against our classmates, not against our co-workers, but primarily our fight is against ourselves, our sin. We have to fight the sin that is inside of us. We have to fight how we can just kind of drift. No one drifts towards godliness, but we all just have a tendency to drift away from right doctrine, orthodoxy, that's the big word for that, and right practice, orthopraxy, that's the big word for that. We have this tendency to drift from these things. And so we have to fight. We have to fight ourselves. Because our biggest problem is not out there. It's in here. It's in our own hearts. We have to fight our own hearts. I mean, think about your own life for a minute. If you can be honest with yourself. I mean, we want to point to other people. We want to blame other people outside of ourselves. But if we could be honest, we would have to admit that no one has robbed us of more joy in our life than we have. We are our worst enemies. Trying to go our own way instead of God's way. 
I know better. I'll do this. God, you don't understand or you don't understand my circumstance. I'm the one exception to everything you've ever written in your word. So I'm going to go this way. And so first Timothy, as we come to this, it's this call to fight. To fight the good fight of the faith. As chapter six puts it. To wage the good warfare. As chapter one puts it. To stop trying to tame our sin as if, it, as if we could try to tame it and just control it. But to recognize it is a beast and it will destroy us. And so we need to not tame it, but kill it. So the Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so we have this call to fight. To fight the good fight of the faith. To live out the implications of the gospel. And again, fight that tendency to drift in, how we, in what we believe doctrinally and then in how we live it out, how we practice it. But it's so important to understand that this call to fight is not a call to fight individualistically. There's, there's a piece of that. But the call from 1 Timothy is to fight in the context of the church together, linking arms with one another, coming alongside one another, pushing one another on to faith and good works. Okay, It's, it's a togetherness. We do this together. If you're a member of this church or you might be someday, we do this together for one another, pushing one another, loving one another, knowing one another. That's why groups are so important. And so it's this context of the church doing this together. That's why Paul writes in chapter three, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that so when you're that means here comes the purpose. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. What's that? The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so this call that we're setting out to go through together with this good fight. is a call for us to corporately as a family of faith fight the good fight together. And across this study over the next 16 weeks, we're going to see so many different things and how this, this call to fight is lived out in so many different ways. And chapter one's very much about fighting to maintain right doctrine. I put a little basic, maybe oversimplified outline on the back of your sermon guide. Chapter 2, Paul lays out some instructions on corporate worship. And verses 8 through 13 of chapter 2 are commonly regarded as the most difficult passage in all the New Testament to understand. So, looking forward to that. But in all seriousness, that is also one of the passages of Scripture that's probably the most abused in all of the New Testament. Misogynists take that and have run with it. And so as we make our way to chapter 2, we'll have a chance to talk about some of that, talk about some of the abuses that have been uh, carried out through those words and seek to bring some clarity to what compassionate complementarianism is and what it's not. 
And so that's coming. Chapter 2. We'll get there. Be patient. But you've got doctrine. You've got, you know, understanding corporate worship. Some instructions on that. Chapter 3. We've got church leadership. Elders and deacons. Chapter 4. We'll get into practical godliness. Chapter 5 is all about the church's social responsibilities to widows and to elders and to how we view our vocation and our jobs. And then chapter 6, we'll wrap it up with a call to fight our materialistic inclinations and to have a right view and stewardship of our possessions. And so that's the big picture of where we're going over the next several weeks. Just kind of gave you an outline of the book. Lots of different, very practical things. I think it's going to be super helpful for us. But today, what I want to do is really just two things. One, I want to take a look at verses 1 and 2 and lay out some background material that's going to be so helpful for us as we make our way through this book. And so we understand what you know, what Paul is trying to communicate. What is hidden? It's all about authorial intent. What is he trying to communicate? And so we'll do some background work. And then the second thing I want to do is I want to go old school again, but much more old school than Kenny Rogers, 1980. I want to go Apostle Paul, first century, and do what the church did then whenever they received a letter, which was read it. The whole thing, the the public reading of Scripture. So we're going to participate with a tradition that dates back to the first century church and read the letter. So we'll do that, but first, let's just look at 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, and get some background. Again, page 991, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So we got hope, we've got grace, we've got mercy, we've got peace. This is what God, this is who God is and what God gives. Grace is a common Greek greeting. Grace to you. Peace is the common Jewish greeting, shalom to you. And mercy is highlighting, really getting Timothy to come back that God is one who helps those who cannot help himself. That's what we see all throughout the book of Psalms. So we've got hope, we've got grace, we've got mercy, we've got peace. But the author here, it says Paul. All right? And so who is Paul? If you don't have much of a background in the church, Paul used to have a different name. His name was Saul. And he hated Christians. He was part of this just unbelievably self-righteous, crazy group known as the Pharisees who thought that they were God's gift to Judaism. All right. And so he says, but I was who I used to be was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. I was a Pharisee on steroids. I was super Pharisee. And what he would do is he would travel around and try to set up Um, and orchestrate instances where the Jewish mob would come and knock off Christians or have them thrown into prison. That's who he was. But then one day, he's on his way to Damascus to go persecute more Christians. And the risen and ascended Lord Jesus 
comes down from heaven, knocks him off his horse and says, Saul, you're going to be mine now. You're going to be a Christian. And you're going to be my mouthpiece to take the Gospel. This is the good news of Jesus' salvation based upon His life, death, and resurrection. To take the good news of the Gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. That's who you're going to be now. And so after a little bit of training and equipping, Paul went from trying to crush churches to planting churches, starting churches all over the Mediterranean, traveling all over to do this. The book of Acts records three of these missionary journeys. And on the first one, he's traveling around Asia Minor and he comes to the city of Lystra. And there he's almost stoned to death. But while there, amongst many, many, many people who came to Christ, there were two particular Jewish ladies who came to Christ. One's name was Lois, and one's name was Eunice. And over time, through their faith, a little boy, who was Eunice's daughter, came to faith, and his name was Timothy. And so before we go any further, I just want to talk to moms for just a minute. It is impossible, moms, for you to calculate the immensity of the importance, the, the spiritual role that you have in the life of your kids. It is impossible to calculate that. How huge, how important that is. If it was not for a mom who poured the gospel into a child, we would not have this book of 1 Timothy. It's because a mom poured, the, and a grandma, poured the gospel into Timothy that we even have this book. And so moms, understand that role. Understand that role. Lay kindling for the gospel around your kids and beg God to ignite it. To give them faith to believe. So often, children come to faith through the faithfulness of their moms. And so moms, pour yourselves to this. Give yourselves to this. And know that God blesses your intentions. You're going to get it perfectly right. Just do something. Pour yourself. Give yourself to this. God gives grace. Pour yourself into this. So be encouraged, moms. And give yourself to this work. There's that, I mean, there's that quote that I think very much is true. The, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And so rock the cradle for Christ. Okay, moms? But back to the story here. Lois and Eunice, they're raising Timothy. They're teaching him the faith. They're taking him to gather with the church weekly. And so sometime around 50 A.D., Paul's on a second missionary journey and he comes back through the city of Lystra. And then this happens. Acts chapter 16 records it. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, so the Jews regarded him as illegitimate. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy, listen to this, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. 
And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so Timothy here is probably in his late teens, and he's just started the ultimate internship, right? Also probably kind of has like the ultimate like signing up, sign on the dotted line commitment with circumcision when you're like 18. But he's just started this ultimate internship with Paul. And so he's traveling with Paul. He's planting churches. They travel to Thessalonica. They travel to Corinth. They travel to Jerusalem. When Paul gets arrested and is sent to Rome, Timothy stays by his side. And so Timothy and Paul are tight. It is very much a father-son relationship. And so when Paul refers to him there in chapter or verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, like he means it. This is the relationship that they have. It's very much father-son. So there's love and there's endearment here. When Paul is locked up in prison in Rome and he writes to the church at Philippi, he writes this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And so they're super close. And Paul eventually is released from prison in Rome. And what does he do? He just goes right back to his missionary work. Starts traveling around. around. He probably makes it and accomplishes his stated goal in Romans 15 to take the gospel to Spain. It probably happens. And when Paul's doing all of this, he sends Timothy to go lead the church in Ephesus. A church that Paul had started. A church that Paul had pastored for over two years. And so this letter that we're going to be looking at over the next four months, this is the letter that Paul writes to young, timid, and sickly Timothy in the midst of caring for that congregation. And so Paul's free at this point. He writes this letter. Right? Eventually he's going to be arrested again. And while in prison, he'll write Second Timothy, and then he has his head chopped off for the faith. But make sure you understand, again, this letter, while it is personally addressed to Timothy, it is not a private letter. It's personal, but not private. All throughout it, it is going to be clear that Paul is not just talking to Timothy, but he's also looking into the entire Ephesian church, has it in mind just as much as he does Timothy. One of the ways we know this for sure is just the, the last, the ending of it. And he says, "Great." the last line is, grace be with you. Well, that used plural. It's literally grace be with y'all. And so it's for Timothy and the church. So this is a letter for both leaders and congregations as to how they must conduct themselves to the glory of God and fight the good fight of the faith together. And so let's Read it. And I mean that. So get a Bible. If you've got a Bible, I'll read it out loud. You follow along, but get a Bible. If you don't have one, grab one that's somewhere around you. 
download it on your phone or tablet or device. Just get a Bible out. Somehow there's every third chair has a hardback Bible. Should be one somewhere around you. If you can't reach one, tap someone on the shoulder. They'll be glad to pass it down. We're going to participate in very much what the early church did. Except they just had to listen. You have the opportunity to follow along. Page 991, the book of 1 Timothy. All right. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hamanaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's church discipline. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, 
for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. With good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yes, she will be saved through, yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That's the difficult one that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as a deacon if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, that word could be translated just women, but there is implied by this translator. Likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, 
being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Notice there's a roll, so there's a list, church membership. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children and shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. And let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. 
No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He probably had like Crohn's or irritable bowel syndrome. He had something going on with his stomach. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who are believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Prosperity gospel. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves and a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, a couple of things. Anybody put a timer on that? Alright, it's probably, I've read it like three or four times this week in preparation. That took me about, out loud, took me about 15 minutes every single time. So, read the Bible. 15 minutes. Six chapters. 15 minutes. It's worth your time. It is the Word of God. It is, I want to hear from God. 
bam, there it is. That's how He talks to us. Read the Bible. But we just heard from God the full context of this letter. All right, It is super important to drill down deep into passages, which is what we're going to be doing over the next several months. Seeking to understand Paul's original meaning, even where it's contrary to traditional American Christianity. What did Paul mean? What was he after? Authorial intent. And so that's where we're going to be going. But it's also important to get the great big picture. And that's what we just did. And the great big picture, again, is a call to a leader in the church as well as the congregation to fight a good fight. To fight against ourselves. To fight for righteousness. To fight to live in holiness. To fight to guard doctrine. And again, it's not individual, it's collective. We do this in the context of the church. We fight together, not in the sense of against one another, but beside one another to ever increasingly worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. Friends, this is a good fight. This is a good fight. And so let's help each other fight. To fight ourselves, to fight our sin. Let's fight side by side for the glory of God the good of one another, and indeed, the entire world. Kenny Rogers' character may have had to fight sometimes, but for the Christian, we have to fight all the time. It's a good fight. Let's pray. Father, help us to fight the good fight. To strive for godliness and righteousness and gentleness, holiness. Seek to walk in these things. To seek to be transformed to the image of Christ, not conformed to the pattern of the world. And Father, we know this happens as we renew our mind on Your Word daily. And so, Father, help us to be people who consume Your Word. Help us to be people who take Your Word super ultra important. But we don't take ourselves that way. We take ourselves lightly. And Father, give us a care and a burden for one another. For those who are members of this church and those who may become in the future, give us a care and a burden for one another to help one another walk in godliness and holiness and pursue faith and pursue righteousness. Not in the sense of tisk tisk, but in the sense of come on. Come on. Let's do this. And so, Father, to this end, help us. And thank you, Father, that you've made the way. You sent Christ to make a way where there was no way. To redeem us from our sin. And so as we press on in the gospel and press on in godliness, help us to always be grounded in what you've done for us. That we serve because you serve. We forgive because you forgave. We love because you first loved us. And all our hope and all our peace and all our mercy 
and all the grace that's been given to us. All of that's a gift from you. You are our everything. And we are in good hands. So help us to fight. In Christ's name, amen.